0: Hello. Hi Bart.
1: How are you? There we go. There you are. There I am. Massimo. Tell me how to say it. So I say That's it right. Just like you said it. Massimo. Massimo. And and Massimo, I thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm just I'm I'm really excited. I'm recording the conversation, so don't say anything, you know, that could get us in trouble. Edward yeah, Snowden, nothing, nothing that the NSA would want to hear. All right. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. I feel, I, feel, I feel better now. It's weird. Does my do, – do I seem – can you see me okay? Yeah. Beautiful. I can see you better now, actually. A minute ago, you were getting fuzzy. Yeah. I think I, think I might – there might be something on my little camera thing, but right. I'm glad it's better. Yeah. It's Good. So where am I reaching you? Where are you right now?
0: I'm in uh, uh, one of my two offices here at the Graduate Center at City University of New York.
1: And that's where you teach?
0: Uh, That's where I do my advising uh, and graduate advising and teaching. And then I do undergraduate teaching at uh, City College.
1: At City College. Mm -hmm. Um, And is that CCNY? Is that the famous City College of New York? That's the famous City College of New York. That's right. How long have you been there?
0: Uh, not that long, actually. Uh, uh, this is my second
1: year. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So now, now you know the people. Here's how my podcast tends to work. There are a bunch of people that are kind of like they're friends of mine, all over the place, and they don't get they, they don't necessarily have access to like all the cool conversations that I get to be in with people <laughs> like you. Right. And so what I try to do is I try to have a conversation and just let people overhear it, you know, because I feel like a lot of times when I talk with friends like you, I I learn so much. I get so excited about pursuing goodness and doing great things in the world in a secular way. And then sometimes I'm like, man, it's not fair that I get to talk to all these people. And so I started recording the conversations. So I just like I I, kind of just want to talk to you about what you're doing and and like, but I don't want like I don't want to kind of interview you in such a way that you feel like you can't ask me questions. And go like, Bart, that's idiotic. What you just said, like, just we're just going to talk like like friends, even though we're that's not good. yet yep. friends. We're going to be friends. <laughs> <laughs> sounds good. So so you're there you're there teaching. And if somebody said said to me like, what do you teach? How would you how would you describe like what your main focus is? Like, what's the stuff that you love to teach the most?
0: Well, by profession, I'm a philosopher at this point, even though I started my career as an evolutionary biologist, so I switched from science to philosophy. So these days what I teach is you know, philosophy courses. Um, I like teaching introductory philosophy, which is something that most of my colleagues don't like to teach. Um, and the reason for that is because I think that you got to get them young. Uh, so you know you get the the, the students excited uh, in the in the intro courses. That for many people the intro courses are the only course in a right. particular subject matter that they're going to have. So uh, so I really enjoy that. I mean it's 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 hard not to get students excited when the topics range from you know the existence of God and the nature of evil. To whether you are in a, a brain in a bat and the nature of consciousness and so on and so forth. So, so that's those are those are some of my favorite courses to teach. At a, at an advanced level, uh, I teach philosophy of science, which is my specialty. Uh, so, what I actually work on on a day to day basis, what I write my my sort of technical papers and books on, is is, is philosophy of science, which is a Attempt to understand how science works from the outside, if you if you will. Yeah. Uh, so there are there are three disciplines really that study science, if you, if you think about it. One is history of science, right? So it, it, that which is in the business course of of, sort of reconstructing reconstructing how science unfolds over over time. Uh, then there is sociology of science. Which is in the business of understanding how science works as a social enterprise, as a, as a social group of people that interact in certain ways, uh, with you know power structures and and, and so on.
1: I in the same and, and way, way, there might would be sociology of the family or sociology of the corporation. Yeah, right. Okay.
0: And then there is philosophy of science, which tries to understand how science works from an epistemic perspective. That is, you know, what what warrants uh, scientists from saying. Uh, that a particular te- theory is true or that a particular type of observation, empirical observation is uh, crucial to testing one theory or another. So philosophers try to understand how science works from an epistemological perspective, from from the point of view of sort of a logic of scientific discovery, logic of um, uh, scientific theorizing, that sort of stuff.
1: Okay, now, just even with what you've said, you've, you've raised a couple questions for me. And maybe the first question is, when you hang around with like you know I'm like the humanist chaplain at USC and I'm hanging around I'm with all these people that are some of them are newly secular some of them have grown up secular but when you hang around with like especially people that are I'm new to this whole game but like people that have been in that secular world for a long time evolutionary biology is like. They love that stuff. Like, you know, they're reading their Richard Dawkins and they're just all into that. So why would a guy like you abandon evolutionary biology? (laughs) It seems like such an important thing. Right. Well, I
0: didn't abandon it. What happened was that, um, you know, for many years I was running a lab, uh, you know, focusing on evolutionary biology and in particular on what are called um, gene-environment interactions. So so we were looking at nature-nurture kind of issues, okay? Mm -hmm. And we were doing both – Uh, Experimental uh, work in in the lab, as well as um, uh, field work, uh, you know, sort of uh, evolutionary what's called evolutionary ecology. Uh, But I also, over the course of the years, I noticed that even though we were doing both empirical, you know, experimental and and field work, the stuff that was really more interesting to me was what uh, scientists call conceptual issues. Conceptual issues are are issues such as the structure of evolutionary theory. Evolutionary theory has been is been um, uh, undergoing major changes in the last uh, couple of decades. Okay, uh, it has, of course, you can argue that it, that evolutionary theory has changed ever since Darwin. Um, during the early part of the 20th century, for instance, uh, it underwent a revolution. With the uh, birth of genetics uh, in, in general, and then population genetics in particular, Darwin didn't know anything about genes. You know, he had no idea about the existence of genes. He had no idea how the inner workings of what was happening. Yeah, yeah, he like- had nothing. You know, he assumed that heredity works somehow, but he had no idea, of course, until. Uh, and people said, had no idea until the turn of the 20th century with the rediscovery of, of Mendel's work and then uh, per, uh, in the middle part of the, middle of the 20th century with the discovered the structure of DNA the, you know, the beginning of molecular biology and so on and so forth so all of these empirical discoveries uh, also led conceptual advances I mean biologists by the middle part of the 20th century didn't think of evolution in the somewhat simple way in which Darwin was thinking about it in the 1850s or 60s, right? Which is perfectly normal. I mean, this is what happens in science. Uh, you know, physicists at the turn of the 19th century and then at the turn of the 20th century certainly were not thinking about physics the way Newton was thinking about it or Galileo was thinking about it, right? So these are these are conceptual issues. How do you think about um the, the, the main theory in your field? How, how do you think that theory is structured? Uh, where do you think it's going? Where Where is the relationship between the theory and the evidence that is available? What kind of questions are open uh, at the moment in that field? Those are conceptual issues, right? Now, once you start being interested in conceptual issues, the, the step is very small, actually, between theoretical science Or in my case, theoretical biology on the one hand and sort of philosophy of science on the other hand, right? So once I realized that, I said, huh, so some of the stuff that I'm doing, it's actually at the borderline between theoretical biology and philosophy of science. And then something, you know, serendipitous happened. Uh, It turns out that I had gotten tenure and I was looking for new sort of new directions to go. And I was at the time uh, at a faculty at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. And it just turned out that the University of Tennessee philosophy department uh, hired this brilliant uh, young philosopher of biology, Jonathan Kaplan, who happened to be working on similar things to, to, you know, similar to what I was interested in. But he was coming at it strictly from the philosophical perspective. So we started talking, you know, he he knew my work. Yeah. One thing led to another. I started. We started publishing uh, our papers together, and at some point, I said, "You know, this is kind of cool, and uh, i like to do it full time." So I went back to graduate school. I got uh, a PhD in philosophy, and then a few years later, I was lucky enough to be able to actually switch career. Wow! Uh, so, but okay, but still, so, even so, you know, a lot of what I do in philosophy science still deals with conceptual issues in evolutionary biology so it's not like i abandoned evolutionary biology i just do it in in, from a different perspective
1: okay so like back me up just a little bit like because i want to know who this person is who became an evolutionary biologist and then became a a philosopher and that is like where did you grow up i grew up in rome in italy And uh, I
0: studied actually philosophy in high school because in Italy that's mandatory. I did uh, three years of philosophy in high school and had a wonderful teacher uh, who really made the subject uh, come alive. And that's – so I I always had an interest in philosophy in in, in sort of as a background. Uh, but i But, I had decided early on in my life that I wanted to become a scientist you know literally when I was a kid um, I just didn 't know initially what kind of scientist and I thought for a, for a while about becoming an astronomer, but it turns out that astronomers have to have this you know the, the, this this nasty part to it that you, that is often you have to stay up at night and you know i think nah that 's not going that 's not going to work yeah. Uh, so over time, I developed an interest in biology and, and then eventually specifically in evolutionary biology.
1: It's funny because when you say that about staying up at night, I read this book a few years ago called The Age of Wonder. Yeah. Do, do you know this book? I, don't, I haven't read it, but I know yeah. it. It's, I mean, it's a, fast, it's a really fun book because like it reads a little bit like a novel, but it's kind uh-huh. of the, the unfolding of science. and, and, and yeah. sort of the, the, and, But they talk about um, William Herschel. Yes, and his sister, and just them making their own telescopes, and then her staying up every night, and you know, just kind of the lifestyle right. of, of these early astronomers. And I go like, yeah, if, if you don't like to stay up at night, that's not your that's not that's your science. Right.
0: Now it's funny you mention um, Herschel because Herschel was actually also a philosopher. What t- today we would call a philosopher science. At the time they called it natural philosopher. Right. There, there was no real hard distinction at that time between a scientist. And a philosopher. But Orschel, uh, although we, we remember him mostly for his uh, astronomy, in fact, he actually made contributions in, in what today we call philosophy of science. So anyway, so I, I got interested in biology and then I went to uh, university, University of Rome um, and studied biology. I got my uh, PhD in, in uh, evolutionary biology. And so then I pursued my, you know, the standard career, academic career in evolutionary biology for about 20 something years. 25. But how did
1: you end up in Tennessee?
0: Oh, that was just uh, when I finished my PhD at the University of Connecticut. uh, After that, I did a a postdoc at Brown University, and uh, then I started applying for jobs. And um, even though I got uh, a number of uh, offers at the time, the best one in terms of sort of combination between, you know, uh, colleagues and quality of the department and, you know, funds that I got from the university to start my lab and all that sort of stuff, that was at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville, so I accepted
1: that one. Wow, wow. So, yeah, I was there nine years? So you know, it, it and, and nine years, and then and then you moved up here to New York for, for a couple of years.
0: Well, no, uh, then I moved to uh, Long Island to Stony Brook University, uh, where I also was in the evolution in the evolution department, and that were actually that that actually was a very interesting experience. Uh, it, I was there for five years, and uh, you know, Stony Brook has historically been one of the most uh, uh, influential departments of evolutionary biology in, in the country and therefore arguably in the world. And it was an interesting experience because, uh, you know, when I was hired, I, I came on campus. I went on the sixth floor of the biology building, the life sciences building, and uh, I just walked around uh, the, the the floor and uh, a number of names uh, on the doors of, of people, th- those were names of people that I actually had studied wow. uh, on, on their textbooks. So it was a really... Humbling experience uh, from that perspective. So I, I was there for five years, and then the switch happened. I uh, I moved to New York. In the meantime, in terms of sort of simply quality of life, I made a decision that in terms of quality of life, I wanted to be in the big city. You know, I grew up in Rome, so I'm, I I like big cities. I like uh, cosmopolitan cities. I like culture. Uh, so I was so close to New York that I said, yeah, I, I, really, I really should move. Okay. And once I moved, then I started looking for a job in the city. And as it turns out, the first one that was available was at CUNY, at University of New York. Not at City College. I was at, uh, at Lehman College, uh, which is in the Bronx, for the first five years. I was hired there as a philosopher and as a department chair, as it turns out. Uh, and then two years ago, you know, a year and a half ago, uh, City College made me an offer to move, uh, to move over here. You don't, look and that's, old enough.
1: you don't look old enough to have been all these places.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, I'm 51, my friend.
1: <laughs> well, I'm 52. So, you know, like now I feel even worse about myself. Um, but but now, you know, one, the, the reason I – the way I got introduced to you was somebody who listens to this podcast said, yeah. hey, you should talk to Massimo – He's all into stoicism. Right. And and I went on your your how to be a stoic website, which it's how to be a stoic dot org. Dot org, right, yeah. yeah. So, you know, just because so, people are gonna wanna they're gonna wanna check all this stuff wow. out. But so here's this secular guy writing to me, like and and he's all turned on by me because you know, I sort of feel like there's there's I don't know if it's the second or the third wave of this stuff, but like I sometimes feel like the, the, the early – like the new atheists and all of that movement, yeah. a lot of that was about breaking free of supernaturalism and, 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 and debunking Christianity and like saying, we're not that and we think that's a poison and we think that's – you know right. and a guy like, like in, in a sense like in, in, the, in one of those cop shows, those would be the bad cops who come right. in and knock you around. Um, but when I came out of Christianity five years ago, four or five years ago, you know, my first question wasn't like, "How do I go back and trash the Christian world?" My first question was, "What do you do now?" Yeah, now what? Right? You know, I have all these values. I have all the. I, I have this whole lifestyle of compassion and love that I'm addicted. Like I love it. Feels meaningful to me. I've got relationships. I don't believe in the narrative upon which it is based right so how do i find you know how do we proceed like how do how do we pursue goodness not on the basis of god or eternal rewards and all that stuff so i quickly got into all this community building stuff and you know where are secular people getting together in a positive way and i sort of feel like i'm one of the good cops like the guy who comes in and says hey you want a cup of coffee what are we going to do now yeah and and it and so this guy listens to my podcast and he goes, Massimo is a good cop. I mean, oh. in, not so many, in not so many terms, he's like, he's with you in the sense of asking the question not how do we convince ourselves that supernaturalism doesn't make sense or convince others, but rather what does it mean to live a meaningful life on the other side of faith? That's right. Well, in my case, um, did you ever have faith? What was that? Did you ever
0: have any faith? Did you ever? Yeah, yeah. so that's right. So I, but, but this happened a long time ago. So so I, I grew up Catholic naturally because, you know, Rome. Uh, in fact, I literally grew up, you know, not far from the Vatican, from Vatican City. Uh, so from not, not, not very far from the Pope. And, you know, my family is Catholics, although mildly so. And it's not, you know, they're not, they're nothing like a, a people. You know, they don't go to church every Sunday or anything like that. But but they consider themselves Catholic. And which actually is not unusual in Italy, uh, especially in urban centers. Yeah. Uh, you know, most people, I would say, if I were to use an analogy with Judaism, I would say that they are culturally Catholic. Um, you know, they, they sort of more or less absorb the, the, the general idea. But I did believe when I was a kid, sure, uh, I went to catechism. You know, there's, uh, there's a fairly um, good separation in Italy of, of uh, you know, state and, and, and church, uh, even though the Vatican is, in fact, very influential indirectly in in, in Italian politics, but yeah, I grew up uh, going to Italian public schools, and there was, you know, nothing about uh, about religion there. Uh, although religion actually was taught as a elective uh, in high school, and um, and I I did take it. By that time, I already did not believe. And and the, the, the guy that that uh, was teaching it was excited because I was one of only three people who actually took the the, the, the course. But anyway, um, so what happened was that uh, so I grew up Catholic. I grew up sort of believing. I remember when I was a kid praying uh, for you know generic good stuff uh, to God. And then I studied philosophy. As I said, in high school, I started, started studying, studying philosophy. I probably already had some doubts on my own anyway. But when I studied uh, uh, philosophy in high school, it was just like, yeah, that's it. I, I read Bertrand Russell. And, you know, first, first of all, I read his autobiography, which – Right there was – it pretty, made a pretty good good indirect argument for a, sort of a secular life uh, you know, independent of, of um, uh, the supernatural. But then I also read Why I'm Not a Christian by Russell and that just – that did it. That, that's – I thought – OK. That's it. Now, I, I,
1: I'm going to feel stupid because like I, I had that book when I was in college, Why I'm Not a Christian. And of course because I was a deeply committed evangelical Christian, I didn't read it. Because, you know, <laughs> I, I, I was That's terrified. Um, was, was Bertrand Russell a good cop in the sense of like, was he, was he a guy who was saying, hey, I'm not a Christian, but this is the way I'm going. Like, this is, this, these are the reasons why I pursue the good life. Yeah. Or was he- Yeah, I think so.
0: No, no, I, I think so. I think he was a good cop in in that sense. I mean, you know, he made arguments against uh, sure. belief in supernatural. He had, uh, you know, the, the, the book, Why I'm Not a Christian, is based actually on a famous debate that he had with uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury, I believe, uh, on BBC. And um, but yeah, it was it was pretty mild. I mean, he wasn't saying you know you guys are stupid or a bunch of idiots or, they're, or they're the or the or the, the the evil incarnate or anything like that. But he did make serious you know uh, thoughtful arguments um, uh, early on in his life uh, against uh, sort of embracing the supernatural and in favor of some kind of you know, more positive philosophy. But at the time when I uh, sort of discovered Bertrand Russell and then a number of other philosophers uh, that I studied in high school, all the way, of course, to Nietzsche – I really didn't feel the need for a alternative I mean I, I, I got rid of the supernatural thing and I said okay well fine uh, you know the way I'm going to go in my life is just like doing what pretty much everybody else does and what I've been taught you know trying to be a nice guy do, don't steal don't kill don't rape don't do anything of that sort just because you don't you know it's not in your nature to do it You don't. it's not the right thing to do um, and regardless of the way you get that idea if you get it from God or, or from your parents I mean I have a good friend of mine uh, Will Provine uh, who used to be a, um, on the faculty at Cornell University. And he's a pretty outspoken atheist. And um, often he used to go to high schools or, or junior high schools in, in the United States. And often a, a student would ask him, he says, you know, so why why, why are you such a nice guy? You know, you're, you're an atheist and yet you're such a nice guy. And his response was, well, because my mother taught me. <laughs> so is, which is really what happens to most of us. Uh, you know, that, that's where you get, you, you get your, your manners and your morals really mostly – no,
1: it's interesting. When I, when I think about my own life, I, I, and I, I was just writing about this today, I ended up as a high school student getting brought into an evangelical Christian youth group yeah. and getting totally swept up in the, the, because it was the nicest group of kids I had ever been around. And right. they were trying to reach out and be good to other people and stuff like that. And I would have told you then that Christianity converted me into being a nice person. But of course, the, tr- the reality is is that I had been taught to be a kind person, and when I wandered into this group, it. Right. Yeah. it felt like, "Oh, this is my club. Like this is where I belong. This is exactly. where we're doing this. this is where we do this in a very serious way." Exactly. Yeah,
0: I, I, I completely believe it. Now, what happened then was sort of this interesting thing. So I settled on this uh, sort of lack of belief in the supernatural, and you know, sort of embracing a philosophy by the end of high school, and that was it. I had no further thoughts. On how to develop a philosophy of life, or whether even I needed a philosophy of life, until I came to the United States, and in fact, uh, until I went to Tennessee. Because literally, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I nobody asks you, nobody cares right. what religion you are, if you have a religion at all. Then I came to the United States, and actually my first four or five years were first in Connecticut, where I did my PhD, and then at Brown, and as I, as I said, where I did my postdoc. And even there, there wasn't really that much talk. I went to Brown as an undergrad. No, not so much. Then I went to the, university, to the University of Tennessee, and there I got people who, you know, some of my own undergraduate students didn't believe in evolution, and 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 then people started. Uh, asking me you know how wh- why why would I think that I was not going to hell since i wasn't going to church like what so that it sort of was that was the wake up call and uh, so that made me think, and that 's how I got actually involved with secular humanism uh to begin with because then I started reading. So sort of this very American uh, uh, phenomenon of, of you know, sort of religious fundamentalism on one hand and sort of uh, uh, secular humanism on the other hand and sort of active, activist uh, atheism on the other hand. Um, I got into a local group. I, I participated for years in a local group which still exists. It's called the Rationalists of East Tennessee. Uh, made good friends there. Uh, but, but it was a result of really feeling under assault or f- under siege by a majority of you know essentially wow. uh, people who disbelieved in evolution and who were pretty fundamentalist religious so my first then, then uh, uh, thought, of course was or my first interest was automatically uh, toward uh, secular humanism, so I started reading you know Lamont first and then and then later Paul Kurtz. Um, you know these major uh, modern exponents of, secular human, of a psychohumanist philosophy. Problem is, I never actually found psychohumanism particularly compelling as a philosophy. I mean, having a background in philosophy, right? Um, I thought, okay, well, this is a bunch of nice ideas, but there is really no coordinated thing. There's no there's no coherent logic behind it. It's just People like Kurt saying uh, you know you got to be nice to each other and by the way here's a nice set of sort of essentially liberal progressive ideas uh, that you might want to pursue and, uh, and 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 push forward and the with values
1: you. do the values that they that, that are so often espoused they seem to almost be drawn out of thin air like you, you go like right. yeah
0: right right exactly there was no no particularly you know coherent foundation to the whole thing I mean a nice set of values but it's like it was hanging in there yeah right uh, so that, but but then again, I didn't really feel like I had much of an alternative. I certainly wasn't going to go back to uh, religious uh, religious underpinning for values because I don't believe that there can be any such a thing. So it's like, okay, fine, this is the best that we can do. That's okay. And then, midlife crisis hit. Right. So I was in my early forties. This is the time where I was actually considering switching from biology, you know, from science to philosophy full time. And can I ask, uh, like, were, are you married? Were you married? I was married at the time. Yes, I'm not. Did you, have, not... Ki- Did you have kids? I do have a, a daughter who's 18. Actually, she's just about to start college now.
1: I, I only ask because you know, the, when when you come to that crisis, depending on your relational, like who's around you, right. so, Sometimes relationships bring questions to us too. We're like, yeah, I wasn't worried about I wasn't worried about the ground of all being, but I have a 10 year old standing in front of me. And I need, right. I need to explain to her why she needs to share with her friend.
0: Right. And that may be part of it. Quite quite honestly, I don't know. I mean, yeah, it happens gradually over a period of years. And when I use the word crisis, by the way, I don't mean that no, I was no, no. You know, around despairing. There was about, no Ferrari. Yeah, the meaning of, of life, the universe, and everything. Uh, it was just like, okay, I was beginning to ask questions and not getting reasonable answers or yeah. good, good enough answers. Because of my interest in philosophy, eventually I landed on uh, uh, what in philosophy is known as virtue ethics. So, virtue ethics is an approach to ethics that goes back to the ancient Greek and Greek and Romans, and it is a very different way of doing ethics from what we do today. So, today, if you if you if you say if you're talking about ethics, ethics is the study of right and wrong. Okay, if you, if you talk to a moral philosopher, to an ethicist. Um, modern ethics is the study of right and wrong. And by right and wrong, philosophers mean right and wrong actions. Okay. So is is murdering somebody right or wrong? Is, you know, is abortion right or wrong? Is, uh, you know, gay rights, uh, you know, gay marriage right or wrong? Th- those are the kinds of questions that modern philosophers, modern ethicists ask themselves. Okay. And this is also the case in sort of the general culture. If you talk about, morality with somebody, that person would, would understand that you're talking about right and wrong. That was not the understanding of morality or ethics that the, the, that the ancient Greeks and Romans had. What they meant by ethics, for them, ethics was the study of how to live, okay, so much was much broader than just the understanding of right and wrong, because the understanding of right and wrong is a component of your life, but it's not the entire it doesn't tell you what to eat for lunch. Right. It doesn't tell you how to pursue your life. It doesn't tell you what kind of life, uh, you know, flourish how to flourish in your in your in your, uh, in your existence, what kind of things to pursue and what kind of things not to pursue. So for for the ancient Greeks, particularly Aristotle, who was the major exponent of virtual ethics, uh, the real question was, how do I live my life? And uh, they thought that a the way to, to flourish, the way to achieve what they call eudaimonia. Eudaimonia is often translated as, um, it's an ancient Greek word that is often translated as happiness. But it really doesn't give the, it's not really the, the, the modern English version, uh, uh, sort of meaning of happiness. It really means something closer to flourishing. You know, a life, the kind of life, as Aristotle would put it, that you get to the end of your life, you look back and say, yeah, that was good. That was that would satisfy. I'm not ashamed of, of that sort of existence, right? Uh, that is the eudaimonic life. Now, the ancient Greeks and Romans had different answers to how to pursue a eudaimonic life, right? So Aristotle, for instance, said that, well, it's it's about pursuing the virtues, which is why it's called virtue ethics. Um, and virtues are uh, essentially it's a question of you know strengthening your character. It's, it's a question of working in your character to try to be... Uh, the kind of person that you want to be, uh, to excel at what you want to be, um, to be courageous, to be just, to be uh, you know, to, to pursue things that are worth pursuing, uh, um, which for instance means not not really uh, necessarily sort of money and and and. Uh, uh, you know. Yeah, you know, stuff that you accumulate or something like that. But but pursue friendship, for instance, or pursue or you know, be um, um, engaging a kind of life that is socially useful, that sort of stuff.
1: Now now, here's the thing: like you know, you talk about humanism, sort of pulling its values out of the air, right? Is Aristotle pulling that out of the air?
0: No. So Aristotle had a theory. Now one may or may not, of course, agree with the theory. That's a that's a different issue, right? But Aristotle did have a theory, and his theory was that. Uh, the reason the flourishing life is the life of virtue is because that's the way human nature works. That is, he had a theory of human nature. He had uh, an understanding that human nature, that, that what it means to be human is to be a rational animal. It's, it's to be a reasonable, reasonable, capable of reason. And also, what it means to be human is to be a social animal. And so that what makes our life meaningful is the pursuit of reason and the pursuit of social engagements. It's
1: so interesting because I would say that the The second point, modern science has borne out, that to be human is to be – we're social animal and our meaning is created in relationship. Right. The the first point, that to be human is to be rational, has been proven incorrect. Well,
0: I I wouldn't agree actually. I I mean it's – sort of – what, what you might be referring to is, is you know, this, a lot of this social science research and psychology that, that, that says that human beings tend to be more rationalizing than, than, than rational, you know, that, so that we make up stories in order to justify what uh, The elephant what, and one. the rider, yeah. Right. But, but I think that – I don't think Aristotle would necessarily have disagreed with that. What he would have said is, yes, but we are capable of reason. Ah, yeah, yeah. Right? And we certainly are. I mean, there's, there's no question about it. I mean, you know, you, you, we get science, for instance, we get logic, we get, we get philosophy because we're capable of reasoning. The fact that we fail most of the times um, is, an obj- is, is a fact of the matter. I mean, that's the way it works.
1: But actually, Aristotle would well, say, yes, that's, that's right. A that's, that's a failure of character. That's right. That's a failure of character, and we need to work on that. <laughs>
0: exactly. That's why you need to work on it. Now, so, so this was my first encounter with virtual ethics, and I, I kind of liked the idea. I said, ah. That's interesting. So, so there is a theory of human nature here that kind of resonates with me. There's this idea that life is about pursuing projects. It's a, it's a project in and of itself. Uh, that, that it's about excelling at something. That it's about uh, – that, that a major components of life are friendship and social relations and and your exercise of reason. I th- that all that, that, that thing that, – that, those are all things that actually speak to me. Yeah. But, but then I wasn't particularly – convinced by Aristotle's own version. As I said, uh, virtual ethics comes in a number of different flavors. So, Aristotle is the main one. Uh, today, if you ask a, a professional philosopher about virtue ethics, he will probably mention Aristotle. But, but there are others. Uh, so, there were, for instance, the cynics. The word cynic today means something completely different. But at the time, the cynics were these really interesting characters. They, they were, you can think of them as sort of ascetics, um, these, these were people who had very minimalist lifestyle, okay? The most famous of the cynics arguably was Diogenes. And Diogenes was um, – here's he a story about Diogenes to just tell you what kind of you – know, give you an idea of what kind of minimalist he was, right? So he was always going around just with rags and with minimal clothing, minimal minimum possessions. Uh, but part of these possessions was this knapsack, you know, this sack that he had on, on his back with all of the stuff that he owned. And one day he was thirsty, so the story goes, and so he stops by a fountain and he he takes out his his, uh, sack and he opens the sack and and picks out a a cup that he was about to use in order to get some water and to drink, right? And then he looked at the cup and he said, I don't need this, I can drink with my hands, and threw away the cup. So that 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 gives you an idea of just
1: taking it down. He's taking it down to the, the bare minimum here bare minimum.
0: Now, minimalism kind of uh, appeals to me, I but was not gonna that going to say la- that
1: does appeal to you, because I've read your stuff, like, that appeals to you. It has appealed to me. If you look at
0: my apartment, it's bare, you know, it's pretty bare, uh, which, by the way, in New York, it's a good thing, because right. you cannot afford, uh, you know, large places, and therefore afford too much stuff. But, not, but, but cynicism, even though I, I think I have a high respect for both the original cynics and whoever these days... Uh, manages a similar lifestyle, there are some people that are you know, sort of off the grid, live off the grid. They, they're disconnected from, from most uh, you know, um, sort of earthly uh, possessions. I have a respect for those people, but, I, but that's not going to do it. That's not, that's, not, that's not my style. So I kept looking. You know, I, I kept exploring. Okay, so the next one that I found was Epicureanism. Now, Epicureanism has a, has a bad rap these days because you know people think of epicureanism as sex drugs and rock and roll you know so it's all about pleasure right and it is in fact a hedonistic philosophy uh, you know, it's a, it, it is a philosophy of pleasure, but not in that sense. Uh, the bad rap actually, interestingly, comes out of the Christians. Uh, the Epicureans were were one of the major rival schools to early Christianity, and they were so dangerous to the Christians that the Christians really started bad mouthing uh, Epicureans uh, in the beginning. And so they they are the responsible for this modern image of the Epicureans as you know, sex, drugs, and stuff. Oh,
1: I mean, even Paul, I think, quotes. You know, somebody says, "Hey, so, if Christ is not risen." Then we're more to be pitied of all men than let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die, which is, you know, that's an Epicurean saying. That's right.
0: Except, of course, that that's not really what Epicurus thought. Sure, uh, sure. Thought. Right. So what Epicurus said was look, um, life is about, or a major goal in, li- in life is ataraxia. Ataraxia means tranquility of mind. And in particular, means lack of fear. And for, for, uh, for Epicurus, fear comes from two things. Um, from Fear of death and, you know, or, or bodily harm or you, know, or, or, you know, pain in general and also from psychological pain. And psychological pain comes from um, fear of things that may harm you even though they really are not – don't even exist. For instance, Epicurus was very critical of organized religion. He said, you know, all these people that tell you that you're going to go to hell because you're doing the right thing and – that's baloney. It's just those are just they're just trying to manipulate you. They're just trying to control you. They're just to, trying to instill fears. So forget all about it. You shouldn't be afraid of death because death is nothing. If you, uh, Epicurus famously said, if, you, if where, where you are, death is not, and where death is, you are not. Meaning that you know you don't yeah. exist. There's you no. You can't be dead. No, Yes. There's no feeling. There's no sensation. So what are you afraid of, right? Um, uh, that's,
1: a, yeah. that's, a, that's a fascinating thought all by itself. The idea is right. like, Yes, you cannot be dead. Like, because exactly. at that, the moment of death, you. you are not you. There's yeah. no you. So, so
0: that also appealed to me. Like I said, ha. Now, Epicurus got something right too. That is, for Epicurus, the good life was a life of friendship and simple pleasures. You know, eating simple food. Uh, drinking uh, a little bit of wine with your friends, um, and, and just generally pursue a life of tranquility. The problem with Epicureanism, the way I saw it, was that, however, it was also very clearly detached from social involvement. From, uh, you know, Epicurus said one of the things you want to stay away from is politics right. and any kind of social involvement because that's going to cause you pain and fear. Um, That that's not going to go – that's going to get in the way of your tranquility. So
1: worry about your own tranquility but don't necessarily worry about anybody else's.
0: Well, not quite. I mean it wasn't quite uh, a self-centered sort of egotistic philosophy. It was worry about you and your immediate friends and family. Right. People that, you can actually, that actually depend on you, people with whom you have relationships. But society at large, you know, the police at large, forget it because you can't do anything about it anyway. Uh, and more than likely than not, you're going to end up either dead or, or, or in a lot of trouble. Um, you have to understand that this came out, by the way, at a time where in Greece, in fact, there was a lot of political trouble. This was after the fall of the Macedonian Empire and the death of, uh, of um, Alexander the Great and all that sort of stuff. So, Epicureanism was, in some sense, uh, one of a number of philosophies that were coming out about at the same time. uh, On the east, just a couple of hundred years earlier, you had Buddhism that had a lot of similarities with, you know. So there was also there sort of a detachment from, you know, social involvement. Yes, you want to do the right thing. You know, the 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 famous. Eightfold path includes right action. Uh, Buddhist eightfold path includes right action, right thought, and so on and so forth. But it's all limited. It's all local. Uh, it tends to be about you and your immediate surroundings. It doesn't. It doesn't have this sort of social dimension. So what I thought. I mean, I, I understand this. This is a long story, but I'm getting to Stoicism. Trust me. Um, so, this whole thing was like, okay, so you got Aristotle, which got some interesting points, but I don't quite bite a number of things that, that, that he said. Aristotle's uh, philosophy seemed a little too aristocratic. You had to be lucky in order, really, to pursue a good life. You had to be a good, have a good education. You had to be somewhat wealthy. Otherwise, you know, for Aristotle, you just wouldn't get to eudaimonia. Epicurus had an interest, interesting thoughts, but he was a little too um, sort of uh, limited in terms of social engagement. Uh, one of the things that I liked about secular humanism is, is this idea of social engagement. Is this idea of progressive politics? Is this idea of that you you, you are part of a larger polis. You're li- you're part of humanity, and you want to do something for humanity, not just for your friends and family. Okay, so there I was, and this was now a couple of years ago, a year and a half ago, and um, and well, then Istanbul. Stumbled- really New man. Yeah, this is really new. Jeez. And then stumbled onto Stoicism. And I should say I re-stambled because, of course, I knew about Stoicism growing up. Stoicism was a philosophy that, although it originated in Greece, in Athens, it was big in ancient Rome. And I studied Greek and Roman history and philosophy when I was in high school. So I knew about Stoicism, not like this was anything no, no I No,
1: I st- it's funny. I st- when I was a young guy in college, a- at Haverford College, you know, I was very Christian and very... <laughs> But I took a course on Stokes, the Stokes and the Epicureans. And, yeah, interesting. You know, right. And it was you – know, and, and what was funny was, of course, from my Christian background, it all felt so ridiculous to me. These people yeah. didn't understand the real right. purpose of life and you – know, right. they, they, you know, yeah.
0: Even though, interestingly, the Christians, the medieval Christians, actually had a lot of good things to say about Stoicism, not about Epicureanism, right? But about Stoicism.
1: So, um, so a year and a half ago, you sort of stumble on, re-stumble back onto, right? What did you? What did you? Who? Wait, did somebody give you a book, or how did this happen? Twitter. On on my Twitter feed, I saw this thing
0: coming up about Stoic Week, uh, which is an annual event. Uh, that is organized by a group at Exeter University in England, uh, where there's a number of people who study Stoicism. Uh, and it's, a, it's an event about modern Stoicism. Right, right. It's an event about modern practice of Stoicism. And I said, what? Stoic week? There are Stoics around? It's like, what? The? Um, so I, st- I read about it. I started reading about it. I said, oh, that's interesting. Uh, and then I sort of stayed in the, in, in, on the radar, and then I started reading more. And then I got in touch with some of these people. Uh, some, some of whom are my are, are colleagues, of course, uh, who in ancient philosophy, and then little by little things like I say, okay, let me take a second look at this thing. Um, and so what I what I did then I said, okay, let's try an experiment. Let's try to practice stoicism instead of just wait, wait,
1: wait. Before you get to the practice, yeah. You start reading. I'm I'm, I'm assuming like you're reading Marcus Aurelius, you're reading, yeah, these, right. and then these modern people too, right. And some and, and, and the Stoics, different from the Epicureans, yeah. the Stoics are also concerned about your character. That's right.
0: So Stoicism also, is, a, is also a type of virtue ethics. And so I, it's I guess what I'm, what
1: I'm just appreciating just what I'm asking is like there was something about it that was particularly compelling to you. Yeah. And and so when you start reading this stuff, what is it that you like about Stoicism that you go like, this might be a lifestyle for me rather than Epicureanism or, or, or cynicism, where you go, like, that's interesting, but not so much. Right.
0: Well, first of all, the, the first thing that did it was that up to that point, all of that sort of search for alternative philosophies had felt incredibly theoretical. I mean, you don't see a lot of Aristotelians going around these days down the, you know, walking down no, the street. Not at all. Um, you don't also see a lot of Epicureans. I'm sure there are some people out there who consider themselves Epicureans, but I, I never met one. Um, and let alone cynics. I don't. I don't know of a single cynic. I, I know of people who are cynical. Uh, you know, cynical. Yeah, and, that's right. With the small C uh, in the modern sense of the term, but certainly not no, nobody like Diogenes. And um, I do know Buddhists, of course. Uh, which again is, is as close as you can get to those kind of philosophies but from, a, from an Eastern perspective the problem that I had and I also actually looked into Buddhism uh, a little bit I read about Buddhism but Buddhism to me is, is just too alien of a philosophy uh, is, you know, it's not, it, can, it doesn't come out of the Western tradition it's not as analytical at least in the, the versions of Buddhism that we know of mostly and we're exposed to in the West as it turns out Buddhism is a really complex uh, multi-dimensional sort of philosophy because it has evolved over the, over two and a half millennia. So there's all sorts. Of, really, one shouldn't be talking about Buddhism. One should be talking about Buddhism's brutal because there's a number of different v- versions of it. Some of which are in fact very close to Stoicism and very close to uh, ancient Greek philosophy. But the kind of Buddhism you're exposed to mostly in the West is that it's that mystical, you know, karma, you know, multiple lives kind of thing. And that really never appealed to me because you know, come on, I, I. Dealt with the the, the yeah. weird, you know, metaphysics before, I and mean, I, I wasn't going to go back there. So now we're into Stoicism. So Stoicism, the first thing that appealed to me, even before I actually started reading um, a lot about uh, sort of Stoic philosophy, is the very is the the, the the crucial point that Stoicism was from the beginning meant as a practical philosophy. It was meant to be lived, not to be just understood theoretically, and all of the, the Stoic writings that we have from the ancients, particularly Epictetus, uh, who was a slave in ancient Rome and then eventually was freed and he, he studied his own uh, school of, of uh, philosophy, uh, first in Rome and then back in, in, in Greece. Epictetus, were, were, he didn't write actually anything. One of his students uh, transcribed some of his lectures, which are known today as the discourses, and in Epictetus' disc- discourses, it's very clear that he, he keeps saying over and over, don't just study this stuff. You've got to practice. Otherwise, you're not doing anything. If you just do theory, it's not, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't really count. So I said, okay, well, that's an interesting idea. What do they mean by practice? You know, what, what, sort of, what sort of practice is that? What, how do you live as a stoic? So I, I said, let's do this. Let's try as an, as an experiment – to live as a stoic for
1: a full year. And see how that works out. You know? and I'm, in the middle, I'm in the middle of it. It hasn't been a year yet. It's hilarious. Like, there's this guy out here named Ryan Bell. who did, He was a pastor of a Seventh-day Adventist church. Uh-huh. And he, he very famously did a blog called A Year Without God. Where he's like, I'm going to you know, live yes. for a year. And then there's the guy who wrote the book, The Year of Living Biblically. Yes. That's so, right. I mean, there was a book here, The, the Year of Living Stoically.
0: Yeah, there is a book, and sure enough, I am actually <laughs> writing that. Uh, but but so but initially started out as really literally as an experiment. I said, look, I, I know enough about virtue ethics. That I know that you know that I am attracted to that way of thinking. I know enough about you know. So stoicism is uh, yet another type of eudaimonic philosophy. You know, philosophy where where the the point is to 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 live a eudaimonic life, a life that 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 it's a flourishing, a life that it's meaningful to you. Um, so I say, okay, let's let's see how the Stoics actually go about it. So let me start study the theory, but also. Very much do the practice. So – and here's the, 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 the five-minute version of, of how that works. Um, Stoics studied three things. There, there are three branches of, uh, of, of study in Stoicism. The crucial one is ethics. And by ethics, remember remember the ancient meant the study of how to li- live your life. Okay. So that is what it is about. That's the fundamental – uh, study that you do when you're a Stoic but the Stoics were naturalists uh, they were naturalists from a, from a uh, modern perspective in other words they didn't believe, even though they they actually talk about God and soul they thought of God as embedding in the universe God is nature okay and when they talk about the soul they meant whatever it is that makes the human animal reason they literally they said very explicitly the, the soul is um, material and so is God it's, it's all made of matter. It's all cause and effect. They were
1: Spinoza. Right?
0: Yes, it was very much Spinoza. Spinoza was very influenced by the Stoics, by the way. Uh, uh, it was one of many, a number of philosophers throughout the ages who was highly influenced by, by the Stoics.
1: So, and by the way, if, you're, if somebody's overhearing us, Spinoza's god then in many ways is also Einstein's god.
0: That's right. You exactly. Know. So Einstein is another a big figure. In the of course, he didn't. I don't think he thought of himself as a Stoic, but uh, but he was definitely influenced by the same kind but of. These God. are
1: people who so. believe that, to whatever sense, the universe is, has a divinity about it, or there's a sacred yeah. quality to it. That right. the sacred quality is not apart from the matter and the energy, but right. rather is embedded in the matter and the energy. That right. you know, I, I, I saw, I, I saw a, um, I, well, I read a book by Ursula Goodenough called "The Sacred Depths of Nature." Yes, it's a wonderful book. That's right. And yeah. and, 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 and and I know Ursula;
0: she's a, she, she's a colleague of mine. She's an evolutionary biologist. Yes.
1: Yeah, and she's. I mean, that book is, is is powerful in the way that it sort of says you need to have a cosmology, right? And then you have an ethos, a cosmos and an ethos. Yeah. And in a sense, I, I feel like what, where you're talking about the Stoics, you 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 entered them on their ethos. All right. But it was rooted in some cosmos. Eh? But, like, they had a way yeah. of looking at the world. And their way of looking at the world isn't as compelling as their ethos.
0: No, that's right. So, it, but, but what is compelling, I think, about stoicism is this. That they realized... So I mentioned that there were three branches of study. Oh, I'm sorry, yes. Yeah. Right? So the other two are what they call physics and what they call logic. What they meant by physics is what we today would mean by a combination of natural science and metaphysics, okay? So basically, it's the study of understanding how the world works, right? And then what they meant by logic was logic as we understand it, you know, they made to, to, to logic uh, itself, to the field of logic, but they also meant epistemology, that is a theory of knowledge, you know, how do you know things? And they also meant uh, what we today would call cognitive science, that is how the human being, reasons and fails to reason. They were very interested in the fallibility of human reason. Yeah, why, why, okay. yeah, why we so the basic idea was even though the stoic physics got a lot of things wrong, because you know, they, their cosmology was very primitive, was not informed by modern science, and their logic also got things only partially correct, because it was not informed by modern cognitive kind of science and modern epistemology. They got the fundamental idea right, I think, which is a, this is a physical universe. It's made of matter. B, everything happens because of cause and effect. And C, if you want to figure out how to live your life, you have to understand on the one hand how the universe world works and on the other hand how the human mind works. Because those two pieces of knowledge are going to be crucial. Your life, is the,
1: you. your life yeah. is
0: the intersection of those two things. That's right. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So once I started understanding things, that when I said, well, that, that appeals to me. You know, I don't have to subscribe to any specific Stoic notion in terms of physics or logic, but I do uh, subscribe to the general idea that those things are, in fact, interrelated. So that led me to actually practice, um, you know, day-to-day in from their, their ethics. And, and the practice works like this, more or less. So um, I get up in the morning and I do um, what is called a morning meditation. The morning meditation is... Uh, you you try to visualize any possible challenge that you think you might have to deal with throughout the day. And this visualization helps you to do a couple of things. First of all, you're mentally prepared. You you say, okay, well, this is what's going to happen. I may get upset about this, or this is what's going to happen. This this may be stressful. So I'm going to try to be prepared for it. But also, um, it it allows you to sort of, um, you're supposed to remind yourself Um, Which virtues you will probably likely be called to exercise in order to deal with those situations? The Stoics recognized basically four virtues. Practical wisdom, which is uh, the ability to know what the right thing to do is in any particular circumstance. Justice, uh, as in dealing with equanimity with other people. Courage, which they didn't mean just as physical courage, but also the courage to do the right thing. So it's a it's an ethical uh, uh, sense of the word courage, um, and and uh, temperance, moderation in, in things, which includes also the ability to uh, exercise self control. Okay,
1: so yes, it sound like they all they overlap very much. They they're very much interrelated. In fact, the Stoics actually
0: believe that fundamentally there is only one virtue. They believed in what is called the unity of virtues. There's one virtue which has these four aspects yep. that may become relevant in different in
1: different uh, situations. Because I mean, it so all comes down to doing to doing the right thing. Correct.
0: Now, uh, so you 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 visualize this thing in the morning, and so you prepare yourself mentally. You know, it takes a few minutes. You prepare yourself mentally for the for the for the day ahead. Then, during the day, you practice constantly what is called stoic mindfulness. Stoic mindfulness is uh, the idea that you remind yourself that pretty much almost everything you do, every decision you make during the day has an ethical component, uh, including the, minim- the, the the small ones. What you eat for lunch, for instance? well, you can always ask yourself uh, where does my food come from? what are the ethical or environmental you know aspects of? What I'm doing now, or you deal with your colleagues, or with your students, or you know, with other people, and uh, all of these have all of these interactions have ethical implications because you know you want to be mindful basically that you're dealing with other people who have you know their own feelings and and, and reasons and and, uh, and uh, goals and pursuits right, right, and right. so on and so forth. So you're supposed to be doing that throughout the day. When you have time. If possible, every day. But if not, at least a number of times a week, you're supposed to take a few minutes out of your day and engage in one or two uh, spiritual exercises. They call them spiritual exercises. Um, Let me give you one that is the most uh, the most um, uh, interesting in my in my mind. It's called uh, negative visualization. Uh, negative visualization is actually a technique that has been uh, adopted uh, in, by contemporary um, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy and, and similar kinds of therapies, which, by the way, were influenced by Stoicism. The cognitive behavioral therapy came out of an understanding of Stoic philosophy. But at any rate, uh, negative visualization is this idea that you you, you um, pick a quiet spot in your office or in your apartment, you close your eyes and, and try to visualize, not just verbally present to yourself, but visualize it in, in images. A bad situation, something bad happening to you. And this can be as trivial as being stuck in traffic and somebody cuts you off and you get angry to as momentous as your own death. Okay, And the idea of this is that you visualize this experience slowly and and with purpose and you repeat it a number of times as if you were watching a movie. And the idea is to to watch this thing from the outside and remind yourself that you can deal with it. That whatever it is that is coming your way, um, it is not going to affect your moral character. It's not going to affect your 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 worth as a person. Um, it is simply yet another thing that happens in life, and and that you ought to simply do your best under whatever circumstance uh, uh, is, uh, you happen to find yourself in. And this is actually empirical evidence that this thing, this kind of thing does work. Uh, in, in cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, this is also known as aversion uh, therapy and it's used, um, to, to sort of expose people to things that they're afraid of and then gradually, uh, uh, help them overcome that, that fear. Um, and there's pretty good and evidence that actually works but it's yeah, an so interesting it's exercise like somebody
1: who's been stuck in an elevator and they've been yes, terrified right. and then like the first step is you might just stand near yeah. an elevator and then say okay you just push the button and you try yes. to get them to this thing they're terrified of you try yeah. to normalize it that's right and so that's you're it, in the morning when you're visualizing something horrible you're sort of going yeah. like okay it's not so scary it's not so scary that's right you can deal with it I can. I can. I can deal with it so that's do, one of the when uh, you do that when you do that in the morning, do you find yourself visual or, or not in the morning? Whenever you do it, any time. Do you find yourself visual? Like it's funny. Like I, I always think in terms of sexual terms. Like when I need a good sexual image, I have my go-to images. Like uh-huh. these are the things that I always. That's a guaranteed turn-on for me. Do you have? Do you have reliable images that you go like? These are the things that I consistently need to. That I worry about. That's right. Yeah, that's right.
0: Some of them uh, come from your from your day to day experience. Uh, As I said, you know, let's say, you know, in my case, I don't get stuck in traffic very often because I live in New York. There's I don't I don't drive a car, but I do get stuck in a subway with you know often irritating people who make noises and you know they're rude or whatever it is. And so you visualize that sort of thing because that's part of your regular experience. Of course, dying hasn't been part of my experience yet, Um, so you sort of have to make up. Uh, some kind of scenario li- like that, and and you vary the scenario. But the important thing is that you try to detach yourself and say, okay, well, I can deal even with that because, as as I said earlier, the Stoics in that agreed with with the Epicureans. You know, Seneca said something very similar to Epicurus when he said, "There's no point in worrying about something that you cannot actually experience because once once done, it's done." Um, the last thing you do during the day is what is called the evening meditation, which is sort of the reverse of the morning meditation you go over you mentally go over the challenges of the day and it helps if you do it as a as a diary as a personal diary just like Marcos aurelius meditations basically um and so you write down um things that have happened to you, and you ask yourself three questions. And there's different versions of of these questions. Some come from Seneca, some come from Epictetus. But essentially they come down to this. You ask yourself, well, what did I do wrong? And you make a mental note of it and say, okay, well, next time I'm trying not to do that. Then you ask yourself, what did you do right because it's, it's good. The Stoics are okay with patting yourself on the back. You know, it's, if you did something right, you got to remember that. you got to feel good about it because that's part of your uh, you know, nature as a human being. You, you do need that kind of reinforcement. And then the third question you ask yourself is, what did I neglect to do? Is there something that I could have done and I didn't do? Right now that the stress is, is over, now that the uh, situation, you know, the immediate situation is over. Maybe I didn't know how to react to that situation, but next, but this is going to happen again. Or this might happen again. So next time, is there something else that I might need to, you know, keep in mind that might be helpful with that sort of situation? So that's what you do, and then you, just, you know, the idea then that you sort of take a few minutes to relax, and then and then you go to bed. And the idea is you do that every day. You do the morning meditation, the, the negative visualization, the mindfulness exercises, and the evening uh, diary every single day. There are a couple of other exercises you can do as well that uh, that Stoics have developed.
1: Um, By now, way, it's, another ad: these are all at How to Be a Stoic. Uh, that's right.
0: That's right. Yeah. That's, these things, that's right. Are in uh, How to Be a Stoic org. That's right. Um, there's a basic introduction to uh, to all these things, sure. and um, now. On the one hand, there seems to be pretty, pretty decent empirical evidence, uh, not, not just anecdotal evidence but also sort of some systematic evidence that these, are, these kind of things actually do work. But, but give me some seat.
1: anecdotal evidence. Like you've been doing this for a year.
0: Right. So in my case, my, my you know, anecdotal evidence that comes to me, I, I've been doing it for, for, for a while now and I can see a couple of things. First of all, I get much less irritated than I did before. Um, you know, there's all sorts of circumstances that used to irritate me and now I can see them with more detachment and I can see them far. Yeah. You know, this kind of happens this, this kind of thing happens and you, you know how to deal with it and you deal with it. Um, that is, that is, de- you know, decrease my stress level, uh, significantly. Uh, I sleep better, uh, at night, you know, that's, or, which of course also helps decreasing stress in terms of, it's all, it's all a sort of positive feedback. Um, I also found myself having made some, you know, minor adjustments, but not minor adjustment to my to my life in terms of practical terms. Like for instance, I'm much more mindful about what I eat. Um, you know, I used to be an omnivore, and now I'm almost essentially a vegetarian. Uh, I, I eat fish if it is under certain circumstances. You know, if if I can be reasonably assured that it, that, that um, you know, so the ethical implications are not that bad. But that was a major uh, sort of change that happened uh, uh, gradually. Although I had started down that road already because of friends of mine that I know that have already talked to me about these kind of things. But, but the stoic practice sort of reinforced that idea. A lot of stoics were vegetarian, incidentally, um, when this wasn't the cool thing to do. I mean, you know, in ancient Rome, that was definitely not the cool thing to do. Um, other minor things, you know, so I, 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 um, I found myself more mindful in my interactions with my friends. I pay more attention about who I spend my, my time with and I try to spend my time with people from whom I can learn, uh, people that are uh, – you know, that can teach me stuff or people that I can – that can enrich my life. Um, I, I am very mindful. So the Stoics are very – uh, big about, you know, Epictetus tells you all the time, you just don't waste your time in, in chit-chat and talking about other people, in gossips, basically. You know, talk about interesting things, talk about things that are important to you and to others. And so I found myself, like, you know, mindful of that sort of thing. And whenever the conversation steers that way, I just, I just, all silent, which is what Epictetus says. You know, if you don't have anything interesting to say, don't speak. Don't, you're not mandated to, to talk. It's not, it's not a, it's not an obligation. Um, so it actually has changed, um, you know, my life from, from fairly major things like, um, you know, the vegetarian, the quasi vegetarianism. For yeah. instance, a fairly major thing, to entirely minor things like I, how, how I conduct myself in uh, in, uh, in conversation when I'm with colleagues or friends. Yeah,
1: and I, I'm not sure that's entirely minor. I mean, I think that you know how that we might be, right, how yeah. we are in relationship. I mean, it's interesting because you know one of the things that you talked about you sort of dismissed about the Epicureans. Or said like it didn't appeal to me because I didn't see a social component. Right. I, I haven't yet like like a, a, as you describe sto- the, the the modern stoicism. I haven't yet seen the the, 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 um, the, the social component. component. Social So what, but, say, what I, I will say what I will yeah. say is is that if it changes the way that you are in a conversation on a, on a smaller level, there's right. a social implication there sure, no absolutely but the, but the thing is
0: I haven't mentioned to you another of the of the, uh, uh, the standard stoic exercises which is the view from above the view from above is um, based on uh, something called a Heracles circle, Heracles was one of the stoics the Greek stoics and um, he came up with this idea that, that you need to remind yourself constantly that you are part of an expanding circle. Uh, you start visualizing this This is a visualization exercise. You start visualizing this circle with yourself at the center. The, the, the Stoics, unlike the, the Buddhists, were very much into the existence of the self, you know, the, the – Buddhist says, you know, uh, very famously, sort of deny that ultimately there is such a thing as a self. But the story where I had no problem is, now of course there is. You're you, you, you. No worries about it. It's, it's not, you're not going to be disappearing into nothingness or something all of a sudden. There's, there is you. Um, but you are just one part of a larger group. And that larger group starts, of course, with your friends and fam- with your family first, and then your friends. And up to that point, you're still in the Epicurean territory, right? But then it becomes enlarged, it, it, it enlarges to your entire polis, the, the, the city where you live, and then the country where you live, and then humanity at large, and then eventually nature itself. And for, for Hierocles, you have an ethical obligation to all levels of this circle. It's interesting to me that the Stoics were among the very first to actually coin and use the term cosmopolitan. Okay. So cosmopolitanism is, comes from Stoic philosophy originally, from Cynic and Stoic philosophy. And it is this idea that you are a citizen of the world. You're not a citizen. Epictetus is very clear. Uh, and so is Marcus Aurelius. They say, don't go around saying that you're a citizen of Rome or a citizen of Athens. or a citizen. You are a citizen of the world. You are a member of the human species you you are you ought to be concerned with everybody's welfare
1: now now let me take you back to evolutionary biology and your background and I go like does that ring true to you? The idea that like as an evolutionary biologist, the idea that hey you know like on some level, your genes are concerned with your genes but right. but on but if you step back a few steps, you're more interested in human beings surviving and thriving than you are you know and then living things, you know, do, does this ring true to you? To a point.
0: So there are some evolutionary biologists, like E.O. Wilson, for instance, who uh, have claimed that we have an innate sense of biophilia. That you actually wrote a book with, by that title, right? Uh, so, connection innate sense living. of
1: connection to all living things.
0: Correct. Uh, an innate sense of wonder and connection to everything. Maybe, maybe not. Um, I, I mean, if we're talking just natural selection, I think that all the, the evolution in biology licenses is an interest in yourself, obviously, because you want to, you know, uh, Propagate. Uh, procreate and, 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 and uh, spread your own genes. And of course, of uh, your immediate kins for the same reason. Now, that may have led at some point to the evolution of group cooperative behavior in human beings. That's very likely. That's, that's very possible. Um, but it's still a small group. I mean, human, human beings have evolved for a long time in small bands of probably 100 to 150 individuals or something like that. So I don't think that evolutionary biology licenses anything like cosmopolitanism. In fact, quite the opposite. I mean, we, if, if you if you think about it, uh, the uh, xenophobia, the, the fear of the of the of somebody who looks different from you, it's probably very adaptive behavior. It used to be a very adaptive behavior. Somebody looked very different from you, or was coming from the outside, it was very likely an enemy that now, was about to clubber.
1: It's funny because the way I, I I'm, I am i am a community builder. I'm somebody who believes that in order to flourish, human beings need to band together.
0: Right.
1: Uh, and and I was part of the church world. And now as a secular humanist, I find myself wanting to pull secular humanists together and say, I know you have these values, but you right. won't be able to live them out individually. You can only live them out collectively. Correct. And so when I start talking that way in terms of tribes and, you know, you have to have a tribe, I, I get a lot of people that go like, ooh, you, you know, you're scaring me with your tribalism. Right. What, what I would say to them is I think that the important thing is, is that a clear understanding of tribalism, of, of your tribe, would teach you that there's a tribe over there next door and your well-being and your tribe's well-being is wrapped up in their well-being and their yeah. tribe's well-being. And yeah. so I can't get you to cosmopolitanism perhaps, but I can get you to good neighbor. Yeah, you then right. say, And then, of course, their well-being is wrapped up in the tribe next to them on the other side. And so you're indirectly connected to the rest of the world. Right. But, but it's not a direct – like when somebody says to me, don't you care about the starving children in Africa as much as your own child? The answer is, oh, of course not. Right. And as a matter of fact, I care about the tri- starving child in Los Angeles, who's not related to me, eh? more than I care about the starving child in Africa. Right. Because that kid's fate changes the, the tenor of my city, which changes the safety of my children as they walk around.
0: Sorry, That's right. You can empathize with the child on the other side of the world, but of course you're naturally drawn to the children that are around you, your own to begin with, but also the ones of your neighbors, your, your people that live in your city and so on and so forth. Now, here's the interesting thing. So, so you asked about you know, the, the evolutionary connection. One of the things that stunned me about stoicism was this developmental idea that they had. They had a developmental theory of virtue. Remember, these people were, were, were writing and, and thinking, you know, 23, 2200 years before Darwin. So they had no concept of evolution, of course, right? But what they did have was they, said, they had this these in, these intuition. They said, look, human beings are naturally, naturally care for themselves, when they're very young, you know, the first thing that the child does is, is to protect himself from pain and suffering and, and seek stuff that he wants. But then immediately also, it, it, the child naturally, again, as an instinct, expands that to the immediate people that he knows. You now, to his parents, to his siblings, and so on and so forth. And, and then the Stoics said, well, so what happens is that then, then you start growing up. And as a child, again, you naturally bond with whoever happens to be in your vicinities. You sort of build your, your, your community ties with whoever happens to be near you. All of this is a natural way of human beings to, to work. We're naturally social. And then they said, and then the age of reason comes in. Then you, then you start thinking more abstractly. Then you start thinking more broadly. And you say, well... There's no reason why this circle has to stop to just the people that I know. Everybody else is on the same boat. We're all in the same, in the same situation. We all have the Theoretically,
1: same. I should care about everybody the same.
0: Correct. And for the Stoics, that was, that was an interesting progression because basically they rooted morality into natural instinctual behavior. And that part is, in fact, validated by evolutionary biology. Uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of competitive primatology, for instance, that, that says that other primates as well have pro-social behaviors that have kind of the kind of altruistic pro-social behavior that human beings naturally display. But what we have, according to the Stoics, that, it, that other animals don't have is the ability at some point to abstract beyond our immediate neighborhood and beyond our immediate group and say, well, what a minute." The guy lives in Los Angeles, the guy lives in China. He's got the same fears and the same feelings and the same wants and the same uh, desires that I have. And there is no particular reason for why those should be less important in this cosmic scheme of things than my own. And and that, for the Stoic, is where reason expands. You know, your ability to realize with reason what's going on here. The social implications of reason. Exactly. Exactly. And that, to me, that really struck a chord. That's aha. Now we have an interesting combination of a naturalistic and a rationalistic philosophy, right? It's naturalistic because it's based on human, on basic, it starts out with basic human instincts that we all share. But it's rationalistic in the sense that in order to move beyond those instincts, uh, you really have to sort of exercise reason. You have to really say, ah, I understand why other people pursue their, their things,
1: and, and they act in a certain way rather than another. But if I drove back to the core, if, if I said to a Stoic, "But why? Why be a Stoic?" Do, w- w- I would. I, w- my sense is that I would still circle around, even after I had all those social dynamics. I would still circle around to the eudaimonia. Yes, That's And right. And they would say, "Like, look. Ultimately, you have a will to flourish." Yeah. And, and and that flourishing has to do with relationships. It has to do with focused activity, yeah. a- accomplishment, um, you know, character, and all these things. And 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 would say, reason using your your reason, extending you out to caring about people in China. The ultimately the benefit to that that will come back to you is your character will be improved. You will be a better... You will, you will be closer right. to eudaimonia. That's right. That, that is exactly what a stoic would say. Okay. That everything positive that you do
0: in life... And in this sense, again, if they're not really that far from, from, the, from the Buddhists. Right? So for Buddhists, there are, Buddhists have these conceptions of right action and right thought and, and so on. But there's a
1: huge difference because the stoic says, hey, you... Massimo, you have a self. And your yes. s- self wants to be happy, flourish, all these good things. And so this is the pathway, like this is a sense enlightened self-interest. Right. Whereas the Buddhist says, hey, actually, if we play our cards right, your self right. will disappear. Right. The illusion of yourself will disappear. You will see that like there is no self.
0: Correct. Right. That's right. There, there is that. There, friends. There, there are others. But one of the things that, and, and this has kind of brought me full circle. You remember, so you mentioned earlier on, you know, that that the, we're trying to be the good guys in terms of religion, yeah, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So where does that leave me uh, in terms of religion? So one of the things that I find very attractive about Stoicism and and similar philosophies, including Buddhism, by the way is that they are inherently ecumenical. I mean, one of the fundamental concepts, for instance, meaning that that they're open to both believers and non-believers. One of the fundamental concepts in Stoicism, in Stoic uh, metaphysics, is the concept of the logos. The logos, which, of course, is the same word that the Christians, the early Christians used, uh, you know, in the beginning was the word, right? The Logos means word in, in Greek. Now, the logos can be interpreted in a number of ways. If you're inclined to be religious and you, and you believe in God, then for you the logos is God and in fact for some of the Stoics the logos was interpreted as God, although as I mentioned earlier they didn't mean a personal God that answers prayers they meant nature itself but but you can be a Christian let's say and and embrace a lot of what stoicism uh, teaches and a lot of, of the same goals as Stoics and say yeah and I interpret the logos as God. But if you're not a Christian, if you're, if you're an atheist or if you're agnostic or if you're a pantheist or if you're whatever, you can say, oh, okay, I, I understand the logos as – so the, 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 the idea that the, the universe is organized along pr- uh, rational principles, that the universe is understandable, which is true. The universe is understandable. Otherwise, we wouldn't have science. You know, we, we couldn't have science.
1: It's interesting. That, I just read this book called uh, the, 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 the Beginning of Infinity by David uh-huh. Deutsch. I, this is a book that, after listening to you, I think you would find really interesting. But the, the, he's a quantum physicist, but it's all. But he he has a whole section where he has a dialogue with Socrates and ah. Plato, talking mm-hmm. about um, the difference between Athens and Sparta and and all this stuff. So, but the but the point is, like one of the things that he says that's really interesting in, in that is that he would say that the universe may not be fully knowable. But it's fully exp- – it's explainable. Like theoretically, sure. it can – and that we are explanation generating – like that's what science is. It's the, gen- it's the generation of explanations.
0: Yeah. Oh, and since you mentioned science, and um, one, one more thing that I find very appealing about the Stoics is that they were very clear. There's a number of passages, especially in, in uh, uh, Marcus Aurelius and in Seneca, where they said repeatedly, we don't know everything. We see they saw it coming. You know, future generations will find out new stuff. And since the basic principle is that the physics and the logic are going to inform the way you live your life, if the physics and the logic are gonna change, you are bound as a stoic to update your beliefs. If you find out new things, if you found out that, you know what, uh, as it turns out, the universe is not teleological, it doesn't have an end purpose and all that sort of stuff because science tells you that that's not the case, well, a good stoic would have to update that belief and say, fine, that's, that's the best understanding that we have. So, stoicism has a built-in um, way to incorporate, yeah, why to incorporate new new scientific knowledge, new knowledge, new human knowledge in general. Uh, it's one
1: of the fundamental precepts. That's what I liked about Ursula Good enough too. When I read her talking about the cosmology, is she was sort of like the beautiful thing about the Epic of Evolution is that when we come up with new knowledge, or when we when when we revise something, we go like, oh, okay, well, let's just change it. Which is very different than revealed religions where every new fact is kind of a heresy and you have to find a way to work around it. That's right. Um, so, so as we wrap this up, because I, what my hope is, is that my exposure to you was initially through the website. This is way better, by the way. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and and I don't I, I, maybe you know maybe you were always a nice guy, but I'm, i what what I would like to believe is that you were a mean and irritable person, and this last this is venturing to Stoic practices has, has transformed you, and therefore we can recommend these widely. But uh, <laughs> I, I think the truth is somewhere in between, but still. <laughs> but what I will say is this: is that a lot of the people that I encounter in the world right now are people for whom supernaturalism and supernatural narratives no longer work. Right. Um, many of them have come to this conclusion much later in life than you did. They're more like me. They, they, and, and the reason that they stayed in these narratives and in these communities was because the way of life, the singing, the eating together, the raising the kids together, the, the, the gathering together on Sundays. For me, the fellowship... And the sense of purpose and meaning that that lent to my life that was the motivation that caused me to be able to swallow on you know, and so as soon as i, I couldn 't swallow anymore i was my first fascination was how do we create a church for people who don 't believe in god
0: right.
1: and some of these philosophies that you discussed earlier prior to stoicism, one of the difficulties I had with them is that they were so individual right and and they don't And in practice, they don't seem to bring people together in community. When you describe Stoicism, I find myself thinking about like the Sunday Assembly community I spoke to in July or the Oasis community in Houston that I'm going to go see next month. These these are like these sort of secular gatherings. And I think I could imagine in Sunday school, at a secular Sunday school, teaching the Stoic practices to kids— that's right. And say, look, look there's no dogma here. Nope. No. That's this, right. It's, it's a philosophy. philosophy. It's, it's not, not a religion. Hey, so this is a, a way. No it's a way. It's a path, though. This is a path. And many of us, your parents, your parents' friends, many of us here, we. this path has really worked for us. So we want to teach you this path. Yeah. And, and, and we're not telling you that, like, you'll burn in hell if you step off it. Right. We're just saying it might work for you. Right. And so, exactly. It and, feels and like it could be a part of a community. It could be part of a community...
0: Um, I agree. In fact, I've been giving talks about stoicism now to a number of secular groups, including the assembly, as a a matter of fact, and I'm I'm going to give one uh, soon at uh, one of the ethical culture societies here in New York. And what I'm, I'm stressing is not that, oh, stoicism is going to be the answer, but rather that stoicism is a answer, and it certainly is a model of how you get an answer. So if stoicism works for you, because it resonates for whatever reason, go for it. But if instead of that it's you know some version of secular humanism or some version of ethical culture or some version of Epicureanism even, whatever, it's fine. It doesn't – or Buddhism. Well, this secular varieties of Buddhism again. Um, whatever it is, one, one, of, one of the um, authors that influenced me uh, most recently is William Irvine, uh, he's, he's one of those phlo- modern philosophers who have explored uh, you know, the possibility of updating uh, Stoicism. And he, called, he, he wrote a book, I think it was called The Joy of Life, about Stoicism. One of the major points he makes in that book, right at the beginning and then again right at the, at the end, he says, look, even though I am practicing Stoicism, I'm not telling you that that's the way to go or the only way to go or even the best way to go. But what I am telling you is that it's worth for you to develop a philosophy of life. To find a way to go. You have to find a way to go. You have to find a philosophy of life. And the reason for that is because once you do, uh, revisable as it is always going to be, because it's a philosophy, not a religion, all of a sudden you won't have... First of all, he says, you will save a lot of time because there will be a lot of stuff that is going to become uninteresting and other things, on the other hand, are going to be becoming the focus of what you do. And you're going to be much more focused. You're going to be more... um, uh, in the zone, so to speak, in the flow of things, you, you, you develop a essentially a ranking or an understanding of things that are valuable for you and things that are not valuable for you. And it's simply going to be a guidance, a framework.
1: You know, uh, I have friends who get into physical fitness and uh-huh. they, they get into a whether it, maybe they're doing aerobics or Zumba, fitness, dancing, or they go to CrossFit or whatever. And whichever thing they stumble into that works for them, and usually different disciplines work for different people because of their body type or because of their personality but some whatever they find they go you've got you've got to try yoga you know yoga is the thing because yoga changed my life or no you have got to try crossfit and the ultimate i think the ultimate truth that you're expressing feels to me almost like a philosophical version of this and saying like the important thing is to get into good shape
0: exactly Exactly. Yes, I like the analogy very much. That's right. And in fact, it's interesting you make that analogy because Epictetus often made an analogy uh, – sorry, Marcus Aurelius often made an analogy between life and, and sort of going to the gym. For him, it was sort of a, um, this, this constant – it wasn't a dance. It was more like a physical exercise. It's a, it's a series of challenges and, and you have to be prepared just like you would be when you go physically you know, into, into, into a gym.
1: And what I would say to people is, Whichever method you choose, many methods can work to get you healthy. Yep. But the the key, the reason any of them work, is for exactly that reason, because they shut out other distractions, yeah. and they tell you what to do each day, and the discipline of doing of fa- following a path is more important in some se- ways than the, the specific the, the specific of the, of the path itself. But to complete the metaphor. Uh,
0: it's also true that there are a lot of ways in which you can injure yourself by doing the wrong kind of exercise. And I think the same is true philosophically. You can also embrace, you know, a, wrong, the, 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 a bad uh, way of life, a way of life that does not lead to flourishing, that leads you to the kind of life that you look back to and you say, oh, crap, I really wasted that one. Um,
1: well, Massimo, I, I'm so, I think you have given your giving. I mean, I think that it's, it's amazing to me how generous you are with this thing that you're still embracing only two or three, you know, you're, you're early into this, but I think that you're maybe because you come to it later, just like me coming to this stuff later, you're a little bit more understanding of, Hey, I'm not saying this is the be all and end all for everybody. Right. But what I am saying is this is working for me and you should find something that works for you because life is too precious and too brief not to try to find a way to make the most of it and to eliminate the fear and eliminate the irritation and begin to experience more of the wonder and more of the connection. That's exactly right. (laughs) Yeah. Hey, listen, thank you so much for for taking the time to talk with me today. I I have some things, I have some articles that as you've been talking about, like I have to send him this, I'll have to send him that. (laughs) So I'll, I'll email you some things later. Sounds good. In, in Christianity, it was so easy at the end. You would say, like, God bless you, brother, or I'll pray for you. or You would say you, you <laughs> knew what to say at the end of a good conversation. I, I, sometimes I, I, what I end up saying to friends like you is I end up saying, I feel like you are full of wonder at the universe. All right. And so I will say to you, stay wonderful. All right. You too. All right. See you. Have a good one. The lights might do a little dance tonight. One time for the nighttime One time for my time